Chapter Five of the Headless Horseman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Headless Horseman: A Strange Tale of Texas by Maine Reed. Chapter Five: The Home of the Horse Hunter, where the Rio de Nueces, River of Nuts, collects its waters from a hundred tributary streams, lining the map like the limbs of a grand genealogical tree, you may look upon a land of surpassing fairness. Its surface is rolling prairie, interspersed with clumps of post-oak and pecan, here and there along the banks of the watercourses united into continuous groves. In some places, these timbered tracks assume the aspect of the true chaparral, a thicket rather than a forest, its principal growth being various kinds of acacia, associated with copavia and creosote trees with wild aloes with eccentric shapes of cerus cactus and arborescent yucca these spinous forms of vegetation though repulsive to the eye of the agriculturist as proving the utter sterility of the soil present an attractive aspect to the botanist or the lower of nature especially when the cerus unfolds its huge wax-like blossoms or the fulcuria splendens overtops the surrounding shrubbery with its spike of repleasant flowers like a red flag hanging unfolded along its staff the whole region however is not of this character there are stretches of greater fertility where a black calcareous earth gives nourishment to trees of taller growth and more luxuriant foliage the wild china a true sapindal the pecan, the elm, the hackberry, and the oak of several species, with here and there a cypress or cottonwood, form the components of many a sylvan scene, which, from the blending of their leaves of various shades of green, and the ever-changing contour of their clumps, deserves to be denominated fair. The streams of this region are of crystal purity, their waters tinted only by the reflection of sapphire skies, its sun moon and stars are scarcely ever concealed behind a cloud the demon of disease has not found his way into this salubrious spot no epidemic can dwell within its borders despite these advantages civilized man has not yet made it his home its paths are trodden only by the red-skinned rovers of the prairie lipano or comanche and these only are mounted and upon the maraud towards the settlements of the lower nueces or leona it may be on this account, though it would almost seem as if they were actuated by a love of the beautiful and picturesque, that the true children of nature, the wild animals, have selected the spot as their favorite habitat and home. In no part of Texas does the stag bound up so often before you, and nowhere is the timid antelope so frequently seen. The rabbit and his gigantic cousin, the mule rabbit, are scarcely ever out of sight, while the polecat, the opossum, and the curious peccary are encountered at frequent intervals birds too of beautiful forms and colors and live in the landscape the quail whirs up from the path the king vulture wheels in the ambient air the wild turkey of gigantic stature stuns his resplendent gorget by the side of the pecan copse and the singular tailor bird known among the rude rangers as the bird of paradise floats his long scissors like a tail among the feathery fronds of the acacia. Beautiful butterflies spread their wide wings in flapping flight, or perched upon some gay corolla. 
look as if they formed part of the flower. Huge bees, melipone, clad in velvet liveries, buzz amid the blossoming bushes, disputing possession with hawk moths and hummingbirds not much larger than themselves. They are not all innocent, the denizens of the lovely land. Here the rattlesnake attains to larger dimensions than in any other part of North America, and shares the cover with the more dangerous moccasin. Here, too, the tarantula inflicts its venomous sting, the scorpion poisons with its bite, and the centipede, by simply crawling over the skin, causes a fever that may prove fatal. Along the wooded banks of the streams may be encountered the spotted oxalate, the puma, and their more powerful congener, the jaguar. The last of these felidae bring here upon the northern limit of its geographical range. Along the edges of the chaparral skulks the gaunt Texas wolf, solitarily and in silence, while a kindred and more cowardly species, the coyote, may be observed far out upon the open plain, hunting in packs. Sharing the same range with these, the most truculent of quadrupeds may be seen the noblest and most beautiful of animals, perhaps nobler and more beautiful than man, certainly the most distinguished of man's companions, the horse. Here, independent of man's caprice, his jaw unchecked by a bit or curb, his back unscathed by pack or saddle, he roams unrestrained, giving way to all the wildness of his nature. But even in this, his favorite haunt, he is not always left alone. Man presumes to be his pursuer and tamer, for here was he sought, captured and conquered by Maurice the Mustanger, on the banks of the Alamo, one of the most sparkling streamlets that pay tribute to the Nueces, stood a dwelling unpretentious as any to be found within the limits of Texas, and certainly as Pitcherske. Its walls were composed of split trunk of the aborescent yucca, set stockade fashion in the ground, while its roof was a thatch furnished by the long, bayonet-shaped loaves of the same gigantic lily, the interstices between the uprights, instead of being chinked with clay, as is common in the cabins of western Texas, were covered by a sheeting of horse skins, attached not by iron tacks, but with the sharp spines that terminate the leaves of the pita plant. On the bluffs that on both sides overlook the rivulet, and which were but the termination of the escarpment of the higher plain, grew in abundance the material out of which the hut had been constructed three yuccas and magues amidst other rugged types of sterile vegetation whereas the fertile valley below was covered with a growth of heavy timber consisting chiefly of red mulberry post oak and pecan that formed a forest of several leagues in length the timbered tract was in fact conterminous with the bottom lands the tops of the trees scarce rising to a level with the escarpment of the cliff it was not continuous Along the edge of the streamlet were breaks, forming little meads, or savannas, covered with that most nutritious of grasses, known among Mexicans as grama. In the concavity of one of these, the semicircular shape, which served as a natural lawn, stood the primitive dwelling above described, the streamlet representing the cord, while the curve was traced by the turks of the trees, that resembled a series of columns supporting the roof of some sylvan coliseum. The structure was in shadow, a little retired along the trees, as if the site had been chosen with a view to concealment. It would have been seen but by one passing along the bank of the stream, and then only with the observer directly in front of it, its rude style of architecture and russet hue 
contributed still further to its inconspicuousness. The house was a mere cabin, not larger than a marquee tent, with only a single aperture, the door, if we accept the flue of a splendor clay chimney erected at one end against the upright posts. The doorway had a door, a light framework of wood, with the horse skin stretched over it, and hung upon hinges cut from the same hide. In the rear was an open shed, thatched with yucca leaves, and supported by half a dozen posts. Around this was a small enclosure, obtained by tying cross poles to the trunks of the adjacent trees. A still more extensive enclosure, containing within its circumference more than an acre of the timbered tract, and fenced in a similar manner, extended rearward from the cabin, terminating against the bluff, its turf tracked and torn by numerous hoof-prints, in some places trampled into a hard surface, told of its use a corral for wild horses, mustangs. This was made still more manifest by the presence of a dozen or more of these animals within the enclosure, whose glaring eyeballs and excited actions gave evidence of their recent capture, and how ill they brooked the imprisonment of that shadowy paddock. The interior of the hut was not without some show of neatness and comfort, the sheeting of mustang skins that covered the walls with the hairy side turned inward presented no mean appearance the smooth shining coats of all colors black bay snow white sorrel and skewbald offered to the eye of a surface pleasantly variegated and there had evidently been some taste displayed in their arrangement the furniture was of the scantiest kind it consisted of a counterfeit camp bedstead formed by stretching a horse hide over the framework of trestles, a couple of stools, diminutive specimens on the same model, and a rude table shaped out of hewn slabs of the yucca tree. Something like a second sleeping place appeared in the remote corner of shakedown, or spread, of the universal mustang skin. What was least to be expected in such a place was the shelf containing about a score of books with pens, ink, and papeterie also a newspaper lying upon the slab table. Further proofs of civilization, if not refinement, presented themselves in the shape of a large leathern portmanteau, a double-barreled gun with Wesley Richards upon the breech, a drinking cup of chased silver, a huntsman's horn, and a dog call. Upon the floor were a few culinary utensils, mostly of tin, while in one corner stood a demijohn, covered with wicker, and evidently containing something stronger than the water of the Alamo. Other chattels in the cabin were perhaps more in keeping with the place. There was a high-peaked Mexican saddle, a brittle, with headstall of plaited horsehair, and reins to correspond, two or three spare serapes, and some odds and ends of a raw hide rope. Such was the structure of the mustanger's dwelling, such its surroundings, such its inferior in contents, with the exception of its living occupants, two in number. On one of the stools, standing in the center of the floor, was seated a man, who could not be the mustanger himself. In no way did he present the semblance of a proprietor. On the contrary, the air of the servitor, the main of habitual obedience, was impressed upon him beyond the chance of misconstruction. Rude as was the cabin that sheltered him, no one entering under its roof would have mistaken him for its master. Not that he appeared ill-clad or fed, or in any way stinted in his requirements. He was a round, plump specimen, with a shock of carrot-colored hair, and a bright ruddy skin, habited in a suit of stout stuff, half corduroy, half cotton velvet. The corduroy was in the shape of a pair of knee breeches, with gaiters to correspond. The velveteen once bottled green, now faded to a brownish hue, exhibited itself in a sort of shooting coat, 
with ample pockets in the breast and skirts. A wide-awake hat, cocked over a pair of eyes equally deserving the appellation, completed the costume of the individual in question. If we accept a shirt of coarse calico, a red cotton kerchief, loosely knotted around his neck, and a pair of Irish boards upon his feet, it needed neither the brogues nor the corduroy breeches to proclaim his nationality. His lips, nose, eyes, air, and attitude were all unmistakably milesian. Had there been any ambiguity about this, it would have been dispelled as he opened his mouth for the emission of speech, and this he at intervals did in an accent that could only have been acquired in the shire of Galway, as he was the sole human occupant of the cabin. It might be supposed that he spoke only in soliloquy, not so, however, couched upon a piece of horse skin in front of the fire, with snout half buried among the ashes, was a canine companion whose appearance bespoke a countryman, a huge Irish staghound that looked as if he too understood the speech of Connemara. Whether he did so or not, it was addressed to him, as if he was expected to comprehend every word. Och, Tara, me jewel, exclaimed he in the corduroys, fraternally interrogating the hound. Hadn't yez wished now to be back in Ballybala? Wouldn't yez like to be once more in the courtyard of the old castle, frisking over the clay stones and being tripe fed till there wasn't a rib to be seen in your sides, so different from what they are now, when I can count ivory one of them? Sowl, it's meself that ud loike to be there, anyhow. But there's no knowing when the young master'll go back and take us along wid him. Never mind, Tara. He's going to the settlements soon, you old dog, and he's promised to take us there. That's some consolation. Be japers, it's over three months since I've been to the fort meself. Maybe I'll find some old acquaintance among the Irish soldiers that come lately, and be me sowl, ev I do. Won't there be a drap between us? Won't there, Tara? The staghound, raising his head at hearing the mention of his name, gave a slight sniff, as of saying yes, in answer to the droll interrogatory. I'd like a drap now, continued the speaker, casting a covetous glance towards the wicker jar. Mightily I would that same, but the demijan is too near being empty, and the young master might miss it. Besides, it wouldn't be rail honest of me to take it without lave, would it, Tara? The dog again raised his head above the ashes and sneezed as before. Why, that was yis. The last time you spoke, diz yis main is for the same now? Till me, Tara. Once more the hound gave utterance to the sound that appeared to be caused either by a slight touch of influenza or the ashes having entered his nostrils. Yes, again? In trath, that's just what the dumb crather means. Don't tempt me, you old thief. No, no, I won't touch the whiskey. I'll only draw the cork out of the demijan and take a smell at it. Sure, the master won't know anything about that, and if he did, he wouldn't mind it. Smellin' can't do the palmithin any harm. During the concluding portion of this utterance, the speaker had forsaken his seat and approached the corner where stood the jar. Notwithstanding the professed innocence of his intent, there was a stealthiness about his movements that seemed to argue either a want of confidence in his own integrity or in his power to resist temptation. He stood for a short while listening, his eyes turned towards the open doorway, and then, taking up the demijohn, he drew out the stopper and held the neck to his nose. For some seconds he remained in this attitude, giving out no other sign than an occasional sniff, 
similar to that uttered by the hound and which he had been fain to interpret as an affirmative answer to his interrogatory it expressed the enjoyment he was deriving from the bouquet of the potent spirit but this only satisfied him for a very short time and gradually the bottom of the jar was seen going upwards while this reverse end descended in like a ratio in the direction of his protruding lips be japers he exclaimed once more glancing stealthily towards the door flesh and blood couldn't stand the smell of that beautiful whiskey without tasting it trath i'll chance it just the smallest trifle to wet the tap of my tongue maybe you'll burn the skin of it but no matter here goes without further ado the neck of the demijohn was brought in contact with his lips but instead of the smallest trifle to wet the top of his tongue the gluck gluck of the escaping fluid told that he was administering a copious saturation of the whole lining of his larynx and something more after half a dozen smacks of the mouth with other exclamations denoting supreme satisfaction he hastily restored the stopper returned the demijohn to its place and glided back to his seat upon the stool tara ye old thief said he addressing himself once more to his canine companion it was you that tempted me no matter man the master'll never miss it besides he's going soon at the fort and can lay in a fresh supply for a time the pilferer remained silent either reflecting on the act he had committed or enjoying the effects which the pothene had produced upon the spirits his silence was of short duration and was terminated by a soliloquy i wonder muttered he what makes master marie so anxious to get back to the settlements he says he'll go whenever he catches that spotty mustang he has seen lately sowl isn't he bad after that baste i suppose it must be something beyond the common and more betoken as he has chased the crather three times without being able to throw his rope over it and mounted on the blood bay too he says he won't give it up till he gets holt of it trath i hope it'll be grupped soon or wes may stay here till the marnin of doomsday hush what's that tara springing up from his couch of skin and rushing out with a low growl had caused the exclamation fellum hailed a voice from the outside fellum it's the master muttered fellum as he jumped from his stool and followed the dog through the doorway End of chapter five